And so it was a simple shift, but it made a powerful impact, not only because it changed the makeup of the panels, but because it started to shift the mindset of the panelists for them to recognize that part of their responsibility is not just to seek out the people who are going to be the right culture fit, but to seek out the people who are going to contribute to the culture in a meaningful way. And I think that HR can play a similar role in terms of reminding the organization and the leaders that this is evolving work and it requires time. Um, and we need to engage in the, the tracking mechanisms now to identify where we're making progress. I would definitely advise a younger me to not be so hard on myself when I made mistakes. I think I've had to come a long way to really accept that notion of embracing imperfection as a part of this journey. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day. Tune in to discover what it takes to truly develop within human resources as we delve deep into growth, engagement, and leadership strategies that can unlock the hidden potential within your business, which we hope will really empower your workforce towards fantastic organizational success. And welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JGA Recruitment Group, and we are specialist human resources recruiters operating in the UK, Europe, and America. Now, today I'm joined by Maria Marukian, who is author and president of MSM Global Consulting. She's joining me today on the show to speak to you all directly about how you can implement effective diversity equity and inclusion, also known as DEI, strategies, and perhaps more importantly, how HR leaders specifically can make sure that the the changes they are making really do fuel lasting change within their organizations. Now, as president of MSM Global Consulting, Maria's mission has been focused on helping organizations to develop and implement, implement these DEI strategies, strategies that can create more equitable and inclusive global workforces. Not only has her work been featured in Forbes and TD Magazine, but her company was also recognized as one of the top 10 diversity and inclusion companies by Manage HR Magazine in 2022. Suffice to say, Maria is a sought-after speaker. She's presented on the TEDx stage for big tech, federal agencies, higher educational, and multinational corporations. She is also the host of the popular DEI podcast, Culture Stew. Now, rest assured, there will be a link to that show in the show notes. I highly recommend you check it out, particularly if you're passionate about DEI. She is also the author of the book, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Trainers, Fostering DEI in the Workplace. And again, I'll put a link to that book in the show notes. So I'm sure you will all agree we are in esteemed company when it comes to DEI, and I cannot wait to dive into the subject in more uh, detail. So without further ado, welcome, Maria, to the HR L&D podcast. How are you feeling today? Doing great, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. It's a really, really uh, deep subject to get into, right? And something that's at the top of many, many HR leaders' agendas. So before we jump into the detail, I'm going to ask my first question, which is something I ask all of my guests. What do the words human resources mean to you? 
I love that question. And I think the the first thing that jumps out to me is human and humanity, right? That when we think about any organization, whatever size, whatever sector, uh, whatever culture or country that organization is located in, it is uh, made by and for people. And the individuals who are giving of their talents, their time, their energies, their their lives uh, need to feel as though they are cared for and supported and that they have the resources that um, they need in order to be able to contribute to a thriving organization. So it's always been really interesting to me that when we look at just, you know, from an accounting standpoint and we consider where our employees fall and in those uh, profit and loss reports, we often see them as a liability, but <laughs> in reality, our people are the biggest asset that we have in our organization. So those are some of the things that come to mind for me when I think about the breadth of human resources and what it's really about. Yeah, fantastic. You touched on some really key points there. I mean, the fact that it's global, right? People are the, I would argue, the most important asset in every organization, everywhere across the world. It's not specific to any particular you know, region or country. I'm speaking to you today. You're based in Washington. I'm here in the UK. And yet we have a common um, you know, idea today, which is really to bring effective DI strategies to, to the HR profession to help them implement lasting change over the longer term. Now, as someone who has authored books on the subject, you host your own podcast, which I mentioned in the show uh, notes at the start. What got you into this subject, Tammy? What drives your passion? Where did this all start from for you? So I think that there were both professional and personal reasons for delving into this work and making it my career. I've always been fascinated with the human side of organizations. My studies often focused on organizational behavior and, and culture and identity, right? So not only how our individual identities and all of those dimensions that make us who we are contribute to the values that we bring with us into the workplace, the lenses that we use um, when we're showing up and also how we interpret one another's behaviors, but also when it comes to the organization and the culture that is created and reinforced within that organization, who it serves, who it might not serve, who it sees and rewards and who it might not were always things that were really present for me and something that I wanted to explore and help organizations explore in more depth to really build, again, the, the, the thriving organizational cultures that allow everyone to be their fullest selves. Um, and then I think also from just a personal vantage point, uh, the focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, intercultural competence has always been very present for me ever since I was a child. I grew up, as you said, I'm, I'm, I'm in the United States. I am uh, American from you know the day I was born and grew up in Detroit, Michigan, which is sort of right in the heart of the middle of America. And yet I had a very interesting multilingual, multicultural upbringing. Uh, my family were, uh, you know, we had refugee um, refugees in our family um, twice over coming from Turkey and then Cuba and uh, mix in a little bit of Polish background in there. And there were just a lot of uh, a lot of conversations around what it means to preserve those aspects of our identity that hold us close to 
the stories, the narratives of those who have, you know, who have been othered in some way, um, and also to use our voices uh, and our power wherever we have it to support and elevate the needs of those who are often silent. So I think that social justice lens was something that was always very prevalent in my upbringing, and that has contributed to the work that I do as well. Well, fantastic. I'm glad I asked the question. I sensed as a podcast episode all in that or on its own in terms of upbringing. <laughs> and stuff. But I'm sure that that probably comes through in your Culture Stew podcast as well. But let's dive into then today's topic of conversation, of course, focused on implementing effective DEI strategies, because mm-hmm. the people predominantly listening to this show will I imagine most likely be responsible or have a part to play in that implementation. Typically it's HR leaders, HR directors, HR managers that listen and check into this. So it may well be on their agenda. So perhaps a good place to start would be, why do so many DEI efforts fail? And what can we do about changing that going forward? Absolutely. I think the the biggest barriers that have pervaded DEI initiatives, not just in the last few years, but I think historically have been, one, when diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are seen as only an HR responsibility. And within that, that it's only about increasing representation of certain demographic groups or underrepresented identity groups. Absolutely, that's an important part of the work, but it's one component. And so what happens is when it gets relegated to this one corner, um, a lot of times what happens is one, the the people who have been who have been given that responsibility don't necessarily have the specific subject matter expertise to be able to implement it, or they don't have the resources or the support from the highest levels of the organization to implement it in a sustainable way. So what what ends up happening inevitably is that there is maybe some level of movement and progress made in terms of, okay, we're recruiting for more diversity. And so we, we hired some more women, we hired some more racial and ethnic minorities, but then there's no follow up or follow through. And a lot of times what happens is those people either don't have the opportunities to advance uh, within the organization. So they leave um, or they don't feel like they are being treated equitably or inclusively. So they leave um, or if they stay again, they're not given the opportunities to to thrive and to really bring their fullest talents. And so they might stay, but we're not getting the most of them that we could be. So that's one challenge is I think when it's only relegated to HR and when it's only seen as either a recruitment issue or an equal employment opportunity issue that we um, we lose something really important in that. The second piece that I think is really uh, challenging a lot of times is when DEI is seen only as a training solution. And this happens so often, and it's something that we've seen, again, for a very long time, but especially for, you know, in the last three years or so since the summer of 2020, when a number of different sort of catalytic events occurred to push diversity, equity, inclusion to the forefront of of our organizations, it was, we have a problem, let's fix it with training. And as a trainer, I would love to say that I can fix everything for you in one class on unconscious bias, but it's not possible. And so being able to see, again, training as one component 
just as recruitment practices are one component of a broader strategy to build an organizational culture and structure that is truly people oriented, that's where we need to go. So I think those are two of the biggest issues is when um, those in positions of leadership and power either don't have the understanding or don't have the willingness to provide the resources and support needed for this to be something that is holistic. And then it just becomes, oh, toss it over to HR or toss it over to the training and talent development folks. And, um, and then we wash our hands of it. Yeah. No, I know you know what I've I've actually seen that happen in real time in the work that we do as well. I think um partly as well, there was a massive proliferation of new training opportunities or providers, shall we say, suddenly coming to the market saying, Have you delivered this yeah. training yet? Then you need to. And I think a lot of business owners go, Oh, we need to I don't want to use the word tick box, but if we haven't done this yet, let's tick that box and bring them in and make sure we've done that for our staff. And it's of course it's the lasting change that we want. Um, you also mentioned recruitment. I guess from from my lens, the recruitment lens, I certainly see this coming through where businesses are really focused on improving their talent and attraction strategies for um, encouraging a more diverse workforce to apply for positions. It's the bit I don't see is after that, right? And it sounds like to me that you see the second part of that process. They come into the business and then it's what happens next because it's all well and good bringing a diverse workforce and, uh, in, into the company, but then what do we do, right? So it doesn't just finish a recruitment. And it sounds to me like when you go into these businesses, then sometimes it's quite siloed. So as you say, it's just with the, the HR team or the training team. So what, what can HR professionals do or HR leaders do to engage key stakeholders to, to, to make it more of a holistic approach to, to DEI? Absolutely. So I, I think HR professionals, first and foremost, have such an important role to play because they do have the opportunity to, you know, to to access, to touch every part of the organization. And so I think being able to leverage that and that can start with uh, finding ways to equally provide support, but also hold leaders accountable for yeah. engaging in uh in, in practices throughout the, the entire employee life cycle to support DEI initiatives. So I was just having a conversation with an HR leader yesterday at a conference who said uh, that one of the things that he has done in his organization that was completely new for this particular um, for this particular organization, although it's something that, you know, I think widely should be considered a best practice was when it came to promotion panels. And this is a very large uh, agency, right? Very geographically dispersed, yeah. um, a lot of, you know, a huge structure. Um, he said for every for every panel that is doing promotions up to senior, more senior levels, um, we have to diversify those panels because what is happening is that essentially you have the, the vast majority of people in senior leadership positions and subject matter ex expertise positions tend to be in this particular organization, white men. And when they get together, uh, and it's, you know, essentially when they're creating these panels, it becomes panels of white men <laughs> yeah. because they have the subject matter expertise to be able to identify who's the most qualified candidate. But then what happens is the people that they select as the most qualified candidates tend to be people who look like them, who come from the same backgrounds uh, academically and professionally. So you get more white men and then those white men become the panel <laughs> members and so on and so forth. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So just breaking that 
that self-fulfilling prophecy and doing it in, in, in this particular HR manager's um, role. He said, this is not an attack. It's just indicating the fact that if we care about building more innovative teams that truly understand the needs of all of the customers and public and communities we serve, we need to be more thoughtful about who we're bringing in to these panels. And uh, they don't necessarily all need to have equal subject matter expertise to make some of these hiring recommendations. And right. so it was a simple shift, but it made a powerful impact, not only because it changed the makeup of the panels, but because it started to shift the mindset of the panelists for them to recognize that part of their responsibility is not just to seek out the people who are going to be the right culture fit, but to seek out the people who are going to contribute to the culture in a meaningful way. Um, so yeah. that's one example. But I think, you know, when it comes to providing those sort of insights and uh, opportunities to mitigate the potential for bias in uh, whether it's in the recruiting process, uh, in the way that job descriptions are written and the qualifications that are sought uh, in terms of selection, promotion, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, HR managers have such an opportunity. And the second thing that I think is really important for HR leaders um, to be able to partner across the organization um, to is to identify the data that needs to be pulled to make more informed decisions about what sort of DEI efforts are needed. And I'll give you a quick example. So I was working with a government agency last year and um, the sort of common narrative that leaders and, and human resource professionals were operating under was, well, it's not for lack of trying because we are, we think we're doing a pretty good job of, um, you know, putting out and recruiting for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, but we're not seeing the numbers change in terms of the representation in our, in our agency. We're assuming that's because there's just, there's a lack of interest or a lack of qualified candidates who represent these minoritized groups. So we said, well, let's look at the data. And when we pulled the, the data, what we found was that um, there were a, a significant number of minoritized um, identities represented in the, in the uh, initial process, right? So people whose uh, resumes were being accepted to move forth to the interview process. But after the interviews, they were not being selected to move forth to the next round. And so what that told us is that, oh, it's not due to a lack of people who are out there who are applying for the jobs and who have the um, requisite qualifications. The biases are showing up in the interview and selection process. And so we started to shift the narrative and that made a significant impact, not only on the HR professionals, but also in the conversations they were having with leaders about what they needed to do differently. Yeah, there's some fantastic examples. I just want to pick some of it because some of it resonated with me in the work that we do and, and the other speakers I've spoken to in the past. And, and and I guess some of the challenges that HR people face, but you mentioned their um, interview panels talking about trying to find someone that's that culture fit. And if you've got you know, five white males on that 
culture panel, right? It's you can, as you say, we often go for something that's going to be similar. But actually, every study that I've read on the subject of diversity suggests the more diversity your business, the more diverse your panel, uh, the better you'll perform because more diversity of thought and other things. And actually, I think culture fits a really interesting question anyway, because anyone who's looking to find something that was like what you had before means you're not really advancing. And that's not just limited to the world of diversity. If you're essentially staying static and to be static means you're going backwards, in my opinion. So when we're doing when we're talking to clients about recruiting new staff, we're saying it's not about finding a culture fit. It's who can evolve your culture, who can take your and, and advance your culture and, and, and bring it forward and, and, and bring it in, in, into the next generation or what it is you're trying to do. And to do that might be one of those many things you could do might be diversifying that panel. But then I love the second part you mentioned about the individual who said we can't reach this 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 diverse workforce we want to. I think you gave a really good example, knowingly or not, of how an outside lens can change the perspective. Mm. But that individual may just be looking at it from their view. We're doing everything, but you're looking. At, if it was me, I'd be looking at it as a, a you know middle aged white Caucasian male, my perspective. And that may not be the right perspective as much as I may try to look outside of, of my field of vision and try and be objective. You can sometimes only go so far and actually getting someone else involved from a, from a different background or even an external consultancy like yourselves can really make you look at those processes with a slightly different lens. And it allows you to unpick and spot shortfalls in your processes. I think the last thing I wanted to mention is, um, and I was really delighted to hear you say that actually there was a huge pool of candidates available, but often a lot of people think there's only one real source of, of of candidates and that is we must go somewhere like linkedin or indeed or something similar mm. where of course that's not where everybody necessarily hangs out right and depending on your socioeconomic background or whatever you may be somewhere else so it's also important to diversify the way that you recruit and the tools that you use rather than look at a single source of truth because even using linkedin as an example the people that are on LinkedIn will share a certain number of characteristics, regardless of your background. I like to be seen. I like to be found. I like, you know, whatever it might be. So I just think that was a few interesting things to pick up on. But to take that further, then you talked about the, the paneling and, and some of the things that we need to try and shift and diversifying panels. How do we overcome the polarization and politicization of DEI efforts? Because we see a lot of that. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we do. And it's it's deeply problematic, obviously, for so many reasons. Um, first and foremost, because we're seeing this increase in polarization to such an extent that political scientists are actually referring to it as pernicious polarization. And what happens is that we have broken into these mutually distrustful camps where our ideological opinions are so closely entwined with our our social identities that we can't seem to separate ourselves from them. And I think to your point, what's so uh, challenging about that is that oftentimes what I hear from organizational leaders and managers is, well, yeah, but we're not supposed to be talking about politics or ideology right. in the workplace, leave all of that outside. And, you know, I, I completely understand that reasoning. And yet at the same time, it's, it's impossible for us to leave that outside because it's so core to our, our values, our belief systems, and ultimately is going to have a significant impact on how we show up in the workplace, how we perceive one another, who we feel a sense of trust and connection with or who we lose trust with based on sometimes just a very simple statement that gets made. And, um, and that increasingly um, across our political divides, we are looking across 
at anyone who doesn't agree with our perception of the truth as immoral and dangerous. And so I think um, that is, you know, in and of itself, the the potential impact on the, you know, quote unquote, bottom line for any organization. I think that's All a right. starting point to say, how do we address this? Because when we are so, uh, so easily um, activated to a point where we will lose trust in another individual based solely on some belief that they hold or uh, who they voted for or what their, what their, you know, sort of ideological opinions are, then we're, we're not collaborating as effectively as we could be. We're not seeking out those mutually beneficial decisions um, that are in the greater interest of the team, of the, of the work unit, of the organization. We sort of lose that sense of common purpose. Um, we often see this is where not only do silos happen, um, but people start to dehumanize each other. And that can be, again, it's showing up in our professional environments, whether we are conscious of it or not. So I think just from a, you know, from that sort of business case, again, regardless of what your business is, um, when you have uh, this level of polarization, even if it's not being addressed or discussed openly, it is having an impact at the that interpersonal level in terms of people's relationships with each other, their willingness to share information and collaborate and work more effectively together. Um, and in addition to that, I think that, uh, you know, just looking at the public overall and particularly with the the next generation you know when we look at generation z for example um younger employees and future employees are increasingly expecting and demanding that not only do their should their employers bring a uh you know sort of a, a social justice mindset and a commitment to diversity equity and inclusion but also um consumers from a consumer level they want to uh give their money <laughs> to organizations that also share that commitment and so um i think what we're starting to see is uh, a lot of you know a lot of corporate leaders struggling with how to navigate that in a way where they are demonstrating that commitment and yet at the same time uh, they're struggling with the the sort of other side of the political pressure saying you shouldn't be talking about these things at work yeah um, this is this is unimportant so um, but I think if we're going to if we're going to appeal to the next generation, both as employees as well as consumers, then it's important for organizations to take stock of where do you stand um, on moral ground? And, and one final thing, when we pull the lens back and really look at these definitions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, going back to your question about you know defining human resources, this is about ensuring that all organizations are um, looking out for their people. Right. It doesn't matter who those people are or where they come from. So all of us should fit with underneath that umbrella of human resources, um, that it, it is not intended to divide us um, or to make uh, certain folks um, experience inequality for, you know, for the betterment of others. It's, it's the direct opposite of that. We are trying to create and embrace practices that foster that sense of cohesion and belonging for everyone.
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And interestingly, so obviously we see it through a recruitment lens, but I've never seen more candidates now request information on on values, mission statements. You know, and we're seeing a huge rise in in, in not just their diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, but sustainability as well. Right? What, are, what does the company believe in? Are they B Corp, for example? We've seen a huge rise there. And I would say, if you're a business owner or HR leader listening to this, who thinks that it doesn't impact you as much because you're in a different type of sector. That's also not true. We're seeing this from candidates in every sector and every industry that exists, from construction to STEM to whatever it might be. And it's impacting in a really positive way from that from that perspective. Now that, you know, there is more choice for employees now than there was before. There's more power for them to choose. If you're not you know, getting on board with this, then you're going to get left behind as a business. And that will obviously impact your PL in the longer term. One thing I wanted to mention, and um, it's maybe a slightly sensitive question, Maria. So um, I'd be interested to get your view. But as someone who has dedicated their life and their career uh, through podcasts, through books, through the organizational, fantastic organizational work that you do as a consultative practice, a lot of people won't do the kind of work you do because there's a fear. And I say that because as my, I'm a white Caucasian male here and I want to be an advocate for change. I want to be an advocate for diversity. But there'll be people who are saying, well, I'm the wrong person to be the advocate mm. because of who I am, which I can't change. But that doesn't mean I can't be passionate about the subject. And for yourself as a, a, a white Caucasian female, right, there may be some that don't think you're the right individual to be pushing this type of, of agenda or, or, or implementation or strategy. And yet I would say that we need it more than ever. It's not about who you are, or where you come from. We just need everyone to be an agent for change. But I'd love to get your perspective as someone who's really operating at the top end of this, this field and who's hugely passionate about making change, whether you've had to overcome any fears yourself or indeed if you've had any kind of um, obstacles to overcome. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Absolutely, Nick. And I'm so glad that you uh, that you raised, you know, that that question and observation, because, yes, all of us need to be in this work together. Uh, and I think the in, in my personal opinion, the more identities to which I belong that offer me those societal advantages, whether it is my racial identity, my gender identity, my sexual orientation, my socioeconomic status, my physical ability, um, the more incumbent it is on me to be a voice, to show up in a way that is truly demonstrating allyship so that the, the, physical, mental, emotional labor does not consistently fall on the shoulders of the people who have been oppressed yeah. and yeah. have been trying to raise consciousness for forever about this, right? So I think that um, there are spaces in which I can place myself because I'm a white person, because I am cisgender, um, where I have an opportunity to educate people who are like me and they will listen to me in a way that they may not be 
able to or comfortable, comfortably listen to people who are representing some of those minoritized groups. So absolutely, I think that all of us, and particularly those of us who do have these privileged identities, need to um, need to sort of take up the mantle. And we have to start by doing our own work. I have had to, and I continue to have to do a lot of self-reflection and humbling work and you know, research on not only the all of the historical and systemic uh, barriers that have been put in front of people who identify differently than me, but also to really listen to the stories. And, and I have also, as somebody in this work, had to be open to receiving feedback, which oh. can sometimes, and, and criticism, which often is very, you know, it, it is coming from a place of um, a desire to help me learn, right? Uh, and so I have to see that as an opportunity when I do get those critiques, when I do have people say, that's what you just said is problematic and here's why, to not get defensive, to not focus on, you know, but let me justify or excuse or explain, but just to take it and really think about, okay, how am I going to learn from this and do differently next time? So I, I could give you examples that yeah. just happened in the last week, right? It just, yeah. it's constant learning, but I, um, and I do, I have had uh, situations where potential clients um, have said that they are really looking for people who do represent some of those minoritized communities and and not decided to, you know, to work with me, which I fully understand and embrace as well. Um, to the extent that I can partner with folks who do come from different lived experiences, I think that's a really powerful way for us to represent what it looks like to be in partnership and collaboration across those identities. Um, but yeah, it is the the work that it requires is definitely um, takes a toll. It's challenging, um, but it's 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 meaningful. And I think yeah. for anyone who looks like you and I do, who does care about this, um, yes, I invite you roll up your sleeves, do the work yourself, be willing to make mistakes, and 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 get schooled when somebody tells you that you made a mistake. Um, but stay in the fight. Yeah, nice. Your integrity and honesty there with that response is uh, is really refreshing. But actually, as well, you, you you mentioned a key word there, which is allyship. I think that's mm -hmm. really, really important. So I'd love to explore that a little bit further in terms of how HR leaders can can utilize allyship to really help ensure that we, you know, they can implement lasting change. I think that's really important. I think it was really nice as well to hear you talk about um some of the imperfections, if that's for one of a better word, because that's ultimately what makes us human. But what really makes us successful is the passion for making change and your passion comes through in leaps and bounds. And I think that's the most, for me, the most important thing we need if we're really going to make change, we need to be passionate about the change we're trying to make and not doing it because it's a tick box exercise or because it earns us a living, right? We've got to do it because we, we, it, it comes from somewhere deeper. Um, and if we fail, uh, there's an acronym that says first attempts in learning. We, we learn from it and you, yeah. talk, you use the word learn several times in that response, which was wonderful. So going back to the lasting change then, what can HR leaders do to make meaningful progress towards creating more diverse, sectoral and inclusive workplaces. And um, I'd love to know a bit more about how they can utilize allyship, as you mentioned, um, to, to, to achieve that. To whatever extent HR leaders can uh, be in the room when key strategic decisions are being made, 
to uh, continue to communicate to executives across the organization that this isn't just an HR issue, but that DEI needs to be the strategic framework. Um, and then to support uh, leaders across the organization in identifying what are the metrics that we need to put in place that would signify that we're making progress, not success, right? We're not necessarily going to get to a point where we, to your point, tick the box and we're done. Um, I often thinking, think about it in terms of, you know, for example, with technology, you have an IT department and you don't call on them just once to do an upgrade to your systems and then never touch it again. We keep evolving as new information and needs come to light. And I think that HR can play a similar role in terms of reminding the organization and the leaders that this is evolving work and it requires time um, and we need to engage in the, the tracking mechanisms now to identify where we're making progress. Um, to the extent that HR leaders can also uh, infuse into the performance management system, the performance evaluation system, those metrics for accountability. Um, a lot of uh, the work that I'm doing right now with some HR leaders is uh, identifying specific behavioral indicators that leaders and people managers need to demonstrate as a part of their performance evaluation process that they are contributing to DEI uh, strategy and, and goals in a meaningful way. So it's not just attend an event and you're good. You, you've, you know, you've covered that, that um, responsibility on, on your performance evaluation, but it is um, through, whether it's through 360 degree uh, feedback from peers and direct reports, whether it is through specific um, projects or initiatives or decisions, but they have to actually provide meaningful evidence that shows that they're demonstrating these um, these these skills and these behaviors that contribute to the uh, an organizational culture that fosters DEI. Yeah, fantastic. So that's kind of a, a, a short blueprint of making those policies sticky and sustainable. But I'm assuming then. For real effective DEI strategies to, to take effect, we also need really effective and strong leadership. And I think leadership has evolved an awful lot in the last few years, particularly since the pandemic, right? And we've got more of a coaching mindset now, which I think is a good thing, empowering our teams to do more. But what would, I guess, what recommendations would you give to leaders listening to this right now who perhaps they're just about to embark on their first DEI initiative implementation? What would be helpful for them to know from a, from a leadership perspective that can get them starting on the right foot? So I think go beyond the proverbial low-hanging fruit. And what I mean by that is absolutely, if you're just starting out, do the, the, the baseline assessment to understand what the workforce is experiencing when it comes to DEI, and then communicate those findings, accept those findings, believe those yeah. findings and communicate them back with your intentions for how you're going to address some of the priority areas. Um, do the training and leaders, please don't push the training out to direct reports and individual contributors and not do the training yourself. <laughs> leaders need to do their own work. And um, whether that is uh, alongside the rest of the workforce or doing their own work so that they can have their own sort of space of psychological safety to explore their areas of need. Um, that's really important. And, um, and then finally, I think, uh, <laughs> 
this is something that I've experienced with a number of um, of organizational leaders with whom we've been partnering for a couple of years now, where we did the initial training, we've got the plan, we have a DEI committee, we're good now, right? We're done. Yeah. What what are we what are we supposed to do next? Um, and it's hard, I think, for them to visualize the road ahead. And so a lot of the work requires a willingness to embrace some of the ambiguity and uh, and accept the fact that the way forward after you've hit sort of the low hanging fruit of events and, and initial trainings is um, we have to really hold ourselves accountable for what we say we want. And that means, uh, that means defining those metrics for progress in a more meaningful way, and then putting the resources that are needed toward, you know, whether that is with um, DEI professionals, HR professionals, um, but not to just seed the work over to HR and say, okay, you report back to us when you're done with this. It has yeah. to be something that is collectively owned by people at the highest levels of the organization. Fantastic. Two things I want to pick out on that. The first was um, was just as interesting listening to what you had to say about accepting and believing the feedback. So I'm just wondering, is this something that is often the first obstacle to overcome? They get the feedback and go, no, I just don't believe that. We're going to ignore that because that I know that's not mm -hmm. true because we're seeing it from a different perspective. I wonder if we can just explore that for a little bit. Yes, just a resounding <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, to, to the credit of leaders, I think that um, it can feel like a bit of a gut punch when they yeah. receive that feedback, because, that. you know, inevitably, the more power we have, the less, uh, the less connection we have to some of the pain points that people are experiencing. And if we have an organizational culture where there isn't that level of psychological safety for people to share that feedback up, or there just isn't a good solid communication flow between the people at the, you know, at the front lines of the organization to executives, there's, there's often a disconnect. Um, and, and leaders are people too. And so they get this feedback, especially the feedback that says, oh, things aren't as great as you thought it was here. And guess what? We're kind of blaming you for that, leaders. Yeah. If you're not showing up in a way that's you know reflecting what we want to see, they take it personally. There's emotion that comes with that. And that's understandable because they're humans. I mean, as, a, as an executive myself, I don't want people to feel like I am creating a, you know, a toxic work environment or not giving them the space to feel included. And so oftentimes that emotional reaction then turns into defensiveness or deflection. Yeah. And that's what we often see is that, well, yeah, but how many people are actually saying that? And, you know, couldn't we read this in a different way? And so they try to sort of like parse out the data and reinterpret it um, rather than really hearing the messaging. And so a lot of times what we start with when we're presenting these findings back is to say, we don't want you to do anything but sit with this, reflect on it, don't jump right into problem solving mode and notice where you might be trying to explain away or deflect some of the, you know, some of the reactions um, that people are having because this is data. This isn't just people's, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're not trying to, to, to get you with this. This is data and you need to treat it as data and take that sort of objective viewpoint to it. 
it's almost imagining that every piece of negative feedback or every piece of feedback, negative or otherwise, has been, imagine it's been written by the president or the CEO of your organization. How would you react to it then? Because that would change the way that you reflect and interpret that information, right? Just from that status shift, which I think would be quite interesting. The other bit I wanted to just to mention, you talked about um, setting up a DEI committee, for example, we think, well, what now? We've, we've implemented everything on your list and we're, we're, we're doing really well. I think it's worth remembering um, how quickly business evolves and, and the business lands, landscape evolves. And uh, perhaps never more so in the last couple of years where many businesses have gone global where they weren't before or they now got fully remote workforces and other changes. How how have those recent shifts and even an introduction of AI, for example, how are they impacting the world of DEI, and are they the kind of things where uh, examples, I guess, of why DEI committees do need to meet regularly? Because actually, the landscape shifts all the time. What can we do to make sure we stay ahead of it? Absolutely. So, having a DEI committee can be a powerful way to ensure that there is, a, you know, representation of voices from across the organization that can provide really serve as a liaison between the workforce and leadership, right? To be able to lift up some of these um, challenges before they become deeply problematic. Uh, to be able to also do, uh, to communicate from leadership out to the workforce, hey, this is this is what's happening. These are some of the, the commitments. Let us know what you think of them and, and join us and you know, work on this with us. So I think in terms of the role that the DEI committees Uh, need to play, one of the sort of evolutions that I think we're starting to see is that rather than making the DEI committee sort of the default uh, DEI office, (laughs) where they're trying to do this work in addition to their very demanding jobs for no additional additional compensation, that it's rather, we want you to to be that conduit, that liaison. and and help us support the implementation, but not be responsible for the implementation of the strategy that needs to be owned by, you know, a multitude of leaders and managers and everybody needs to feel like they understand their role in it. Um, Absolutely, the, the, you know, globalization of many organizations, I think, has also brought this to the forefront because from an intercultural lens, People are coming together for the first time, working on teams with very different expectations, uh, conflict styles, uh, interpretations of behavior. And I think organizational leaders don't necessarily always recognize the significant productivity consequence that that can have when we don't give people the time to be able to create relationships with each other, be able to understand and uh, manage those immediate sort of gut reactions and interpretations of one another's behaviors um, to build that trust and that, you know, that sense of um, what are the the norms that we want to set intentionally as a, as a multicultural team to be able to do the work effectively. Um, so I think it's the the need to slow down when all of the pressures around us are telling us to go faster. I think slow down to speed up. Exactly. It feels very challenging for leaders, but they have to reinforce that and then actually follow through and give and, and give teams the opportunity to do so. And the same with remote work, right? The 
we don't have the, the same opportunities for connection and cohesion that we used to have when we were physically working together in the same space. Even going from one meeting to another, you might walk there through the hallways with a colleague. And so that five minutes of just connective tissue that we would have yeah. throughout the day gets lost when we're going from one Zoom call to another. And so equally with the, you know, focusing on um, intercultural competency building with teams, uh, taking the time to reimagine what a cohesive, caring team environment looks like for us when we are working remotely and when we are coming from these identity differences is equally important to tasking out to people. You do this and you do that and do it by such and such deadline. What I absolutely love, not just by that response, but every response you've given in today's show, right, is <laughs> even if we take out away the DEI lens from everything you've discussed, actually everything you've talked about today, the principles behind what you've talked about today are actually the tenets of what makes a successful modern business and a successful modern leader. You've talked about diversity of thought, right? And that, that could be around paneling. It could be around the way you recruit. Uh, you've talked about utilizing data, right? And data's never been more important and listening and, and, and analyzing that data and using it to make better and more informed decisions. You've talked about collaboration, allyship, and how that's important in modern business. The ability to create trust, the ability to actually consider your employees in this whole situation as your consumers, the people that are going to be driving your business. I mean, this is all really important stuff to creating effective business, let alone, you know, even taking the whole DI lens out of the way. But if you bring that in, I mean, just how successful you could be as a leader, as a business, I think is is, is phenomenal. So a really important conversation. Um, I'm going to open the L&D vaults. Opening the L&D vault. Um, three quick questions for you, Maria. The first one is this. If you could give one piece of advice to the world, what would it be? Uh, practice compassion. And what I mean by that is all of us as human beings crave to be understood and to feel that sense of belonging. And the quickest way to break that feeling of belonging or understanding is to not listen with compassion to our fellow humans. And I know it sounds so quirky, but it makes a huge difference. And I've seen it play out um, in organizations around the world when we give people some space to just not only share their opinion, but their why, and yeah. we encourage others to listen with that curiosity and compassion. There's this beautiful moment of connection, even if we don't agree, even if our lives have been fundamentally different. And there's a level of re reciprocity that often comes with that, that then the person who shared their story and their why, once they feel listened to and heard and validated, they're more likely to listen to and hear and validate others. And so I think practice compassion, even when it's really, really challenging, <laughs> is, is such a fundamental need right now. I think it's an unbelievable response. I couldn't agree more. And actually, you know what? Everyone in the workforce, either now or towards the end of your career, will go through some form of trauma with a small T, big T, whatever it might be. We don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. And if we go in with compassion, then, yeah, as you say, it, it can it can work wonders uh, for the right reasons. If you had the opportunity, what advice would you give a younger you just starting out in this new world of work? Ooh, I would definitely advise a younger me to not be so hard on myself when I made mistakes 
Um, I think I've had to come a long way to really accept that uh, that notion of embracing imperfection as a part of this journey uh, and to not see critique and uh, not see critique as criticism or uh, a fundamental sort of <laughs> demoralizing of my abilities or character, right? That it is, hey, you messed up. I need you to know you messed up and here's what you can do differently. Um, and so I think those are the two things that I wish I had learned a little bit earlier, but they, they are lessons that continue to present themselves to me and I'm working on them. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you seem to be a go-getter. You've got your podcast, you've got your books, you've got a fantastic consultancy firm, which I'm going to give the links to in just a moment. Uh, and last question, what is the guiding principle or behavior you've seen in every great leader that you've had the opportunity to work with? Mm. The guiding principle, I think, is... I think it is the ability to receive feedback. Um, really incredible, powerful leaders, not only uh, elicit feedback from those who often don't have an opportunity to share their voice and their experiences, but they really listen and take action based on that feedback. And I think that that sort of encapsulates everything that we've been talking about in terms of humanizing others and empathy and listening. Um, but when we as leaders create the space where not only do we ask for, but we really internalize feedback from those who have less power than us, that creates a monumental shift in the organizational culture. Super, fantastic. And my last question, uh, but of course, compassion would be in there as well, of course. My last question, uh, before we jump into the resources, which I hope people listen to, because we've got some fantastic ones to share. Are there any questions I haven't asked you today that you'd like some closing remarks on in relation to DEI that the HR leaders, you know, maybe we've covered all the ground today, but there's something you'd, you'd like to, to finish with that just leaves a lasting impression on, on the listeners in relation to DEI. What would that be? Oh, I mean, you asked so many good questions. I've had such a wonderful <laughs> time in this um, conversation. I think one thing that uh, has been very prevalent in my conversations with leaders and particularly in HR and human capital is, um, yes, absolutely, there's a need for us to provide ongoing learning and development specifically around DEI and culture. And we need to take these concepts and embed them into the entire learning and development continuum within our organization. So regardless of what sort of formal or informal training we're offering from orientation materials all the way through to executive development coaching, these DEI concepts should be embedded so that we're constantly reinforcing the knowledge and the skills that we want people to internalize. And I think that's been growing, but it still is often a big gap in a lot of organizations in terms of how they're approaching this from an educational and developmental perspective. So I'm hoping to see more of that in the future. Fantastic. And of course, if you really enjoyed this episode and you want to find out more about Maria's wonderful work, of course, you can get her book, which is Diversity, Equity and Inclusion for Trainers, Fostering DEI in the Workplace, available on Amazon now. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can definitely subscribe to her very own podcast called Culture Shoe, which definitely explores these DEI subjects in much more detail. So I'll also put a link to that in the show notes. And of course, if you want to engage with Maria on a more professional basis, then please do check out her website, which is msmglobalconsulting.com. I'll also include 
various links to uh, Maria's LinkedIn page. I've got a YouTube page, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and others. So uh, lots of links in the show notes for everyone to uh, to, to absorb and, and to connect with and to, to have a look around. But please do uh, get in touch with Maria if you want support with your own DI agendas or DI, DEI strategies, uh, and you'll find a wealth of resources on that website as well. Is there any other links you'd like me to share or we covered them today, Maria? I think you covered them all, Nick. This is great. Fantastic. Well, it just leaves me to say then a huge thank you today for joining me on the HRMD podcast. A really important conversation, something that uh, your passion really comes through, right? And I, I think that's wonderful. I think you're doing great work. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to offer your expertise to our listeners today. I think it's been a, a really, um, really exciting and interesting episode, hopefully with a wealth of information they can take away. And of course, if you are an HRMD professional listening to the show and you need support with your talent and, and attraction, um, acquisition process, you need some recruitment support, please do get in touch with either myself or any of my wonderful team at jgarecruitment.com if you're in the UK or jgarecruitmentinc.com if you're in the US. Uh, just leaves me to say a huge thank you once again, Maria, for joining me today. I look forward to bringing you the next episode of the show real soon. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you so much for tuning into HR L&D Podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA HR Recruitment. If you need help with a current HR, payroll or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.